turn with me to 1st Corinthians chapter 12, no, chapter 14, 1st Corinthians 14, and uh, this chapter is an interesting one to say the least, it's kind of an end cap, if you will, to our study of spiritual gifts, and it's something that Paul needed to address, because remember the Corinthians had written to Paul, asking a lot of questions about various things. And apparently, one of the things that they were concerned about was the uh, use of spiritual gifts in the assembling together what we call the church. It's not the building we're referring to. It's the people that attend a church service. And that church service is a gathering of the church, the people, the body of Christ. So we are the church, not the building that we're in. But Paul addresses this assembling together in any setting that more than one person that is a believer comes together. You are then the church gathered together as an assembly. And so when we come together in a Zoom meeting like this, we, the church, have assembled together to study the Word of God. And and Paul recognized that in Corinth, however it was that they came together, there were a lot of issues. Uh, and some of those issues he's already addressed in the previous chapters that we've already looked at. Remember in chapter 1, Paul told the Corinthian church that they uh, were not behind any other of the churches that he ministered to with regard to spiritual gifts. But then in chapter 3, he mentioned to them that they were carnal Christians. In other words, their lack of understanding, if you will, of spiritual things in a way that would be glorifying God and edifying one another was a real issue. And Paul over and over and over again in this letter to the Corinthian church has used the word edify or edification or some form of it, which simply means the building up of one another. And edifying the body or the church was of a paramount importance to Paul's, Paul's uh, efforts in this letter that he's writing to them because they were more into edifying themselves rather than others. And remember in chapter 8, we looked at the fact that Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so we looked last time at the greatest of all that he spoke of in this relationship of edification was the ministry to one another in love. And so chapter 13 introduced Paul's great love chapter, which we looked at two weeks ago. And Although the spiritual gifts were important, Paul's emphasizing now in chapter 13 that love is far better. In fact, at the end of chapter 12, you may recall, he had told them, earnestly desire the best gifts, and he had mentioned several of the gifts of the Spirit in the previous chapters, but he says, I show you a more excellent way, and that more excellent way was the fruit that is known as love. And love is not a gift. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's necessary. Without love, the spiritual gifts 
were meaningless. And so now, Paul in chapter 14 is going to close his discussion on a couple of these particular gifts of the Spirit that he wanted to spend some more time with because these gifts were the ones that apparently the Corinthian church were concerned about the most. They uh, emphasized these gifts more than some of the others in, in, in their communication with Paul, and Paul had seen some issues that were obvious to him that he needed to clarify, and he's done this in these last several chapters, and in, in chapter 14 he'll complete that analysis of his with regard to uh, the spiritual gifts, in particular two, as I said, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. So chapter 14, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, begins with this statement of Paul, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Both are important, he's saying. But then he goes on to say, but especially that you may prophesy. Prophesy or prophesying is a special gift that was important as far as Paul was concerned because it is a gift that is used in the church for bringing forth God's word. Sometimes foretelling the future, but it is primarily in the church used to clarify, to instruct, to edify the body of Christ through the speaking of God's word to the people. And we'll see that as we move forward. Verse 2 says, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Paul's making a distinction here between prophecy, which is something that you're speaking in a language that everybody knows, and tongues, in which you're speaking in a language that nobody may know. Now, it could be a language that one or two of the people in the church, in the assembly, might be familiar with. Or it could be a completely foreign language to all. But what he's saying here in verse 2 is very significant. He says, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And from that statement, and others in chapter 14, we can draw a conclusion about the purpose of speaking in tongues. It is a private prayer language that the Lord gives the believers as a gift. And it is a gift that is used not to edify the body, the assembly, the church, but to edify the individual who is speaking this gift of tongues in his prayer language, in his prayer time alone, outside of the fellowship. Now, if it's used in the fellowship with other believers, then it is needing to be interpreted when it is utilized, and we'll see that later on. But Paul's saying, you're not speaking to men when you're speaking in tongues, you're speaking to God. You're giving thanks to God, you're praising the Lord, you're speaking to God directly through the Spirit of God who dwells in you, who gives this gift of tongues to individuals who uh, have been blessed with that gift. Not everybody does speak in tongues, and he'll talk about that too. He says in verse 3, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So the purpose here in the assembly of prophecy, when the church is gathered together, is 
that prophecy should be used for exhortation and for edification, as we've been saying, and for comfort to those who have gathered together. Now in verse 4, he says, But he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, not the church. He edifies himself. Why? Because the church doesn't have any way of understanding what that individual might be saying. He says again, He who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So Paul is making a very clear distinction between these two wonderful gifts of God. One is for the edification of the church, the body of Christ, and the other is for personal edification. So that's important for us all to understand and to uh, take note of because he's going to be talking about these two gifts back and forth throughout the remainder of this chapter. Verse 5 says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. So apparently not all of them did speak in tongues, and that's typical of the church today. Not everyone speaks in tongues, and there should be no expectation in the church that everybody should have this gift. It's a gift that God gives as he chooses to give. It doesn't mean that it's not a gift that you should seek for. And I know that I did, I know others that I'm very familiar with in my Christian experience that did seek the gift and did receive the gift of speaking in tongues, and it's a wonderful blessing, but it makes none of us any more spiritual than anyone else, regardless of whether you speak in tongues or not. That's not the issue. It's just one of the gifts that God has given individuals. In this case, this gift is primarily for the purpose of bringing edification to yourself or building oneself up in your most holy faith. In the use of this gift, there is great benefit, in other words. And so it's very good for anyone to seek to be able to have any gift from God, including this gift of tongues. He who speaks in a tongue, though, edifies himself, and he who prophesies edifies the church. Verse 5 says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speak with, speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So again, the implication that Paul is giving to us here is that tongues should not be used in the church gathering unless there is one who interprets. And you remember the gift of interpretation is another of those gifts that Paul mentioned in chapter 12. And it's used always in the assembly, in the church, whenever a gift of tongues is being manifest. And again, it's by the Spirit of God that this would have to be done. If the Spirit of God leads one to speak in an unknown tongue in the assembly, then the Spirit of God will lead someone, either that individual or some other individual in the assembly, to have the interpretation of what has been spoken. And again, keep in mind that the one who speaks in tongues does not speak to men. So it's not like speaking a word to men from God. It's speaking from men to God. And Paul will tell us that again later on, that it is something that is from our own personal experience as believers in Christ, that we are filled with His Holy Spirit, and His Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, is capable of speaking through us in a language that we're not familiar with, but it's always speaking 
to God from men. Verse 6 continues and he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? In other words, you're not going to be edified if I speak to you in tongues. It's much better if I speak to you through a revelation from God or some gift of knowledge or gift of prophecy or gift of teaching. Again, these are all gifts that God, by the Spirit of God, does use in the assembly as he chooses to distribute among the believers those gifts. So Paul's saying, it profits you nothing if I'm speaking to you in tongues, but I'd much rather give you a revelation from God. I'd much rather have the gift of knowledge or gift of prophecy or gift of teaching in ministering to the body of Christ. And he goes on to explain why that is so in verse 17 and following. He says, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now, of course, in those days, the trumpet was a very, very important instrument in warfare. They had different soundings for different events. And even in our present-day military in our country, we have a bugle that is sounded at Reveille to wake everybody up, or there's a bugle sound that is a charge. You often might hear that even in you know, football games where they have a bugless bugler who plays the charge for everybody to say charge or you know, some chant that will incite the players to greater things. So this is an important thing as far as the church is concerned to understand. It needs to have some kind of relevance. That's what Paul is saying. So likewise you, he says in verse 9, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, he says, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you may seek to excel. Again, Paul is emphasizing speaking in tongues doesn't edify the church. And when you do that, and there's no interpretation, it's like a clanging symbol, symbol rather, or just blowing a trumpet without making any sensible, sensible notes out of that trumpet. I can do that. I can blow on a trumpet all day long, but never make a sensible sound. Uh, I'm glad I can play the guitar. At least I can play a chord or two and make it sound as though I know what I'm doing. But I'm not a very good pianist. I can play a few notes on a piano, and I can hear the notes and say, oh, yeah, that's right, that sounds like the right note. But if I were to try to play with all of my fingers on a piano like so many talented pianists do, I'd be really making a mess of things. So it's implied here again that tongues is like that, and it's not to be something to be utilized in the way that the Corinthian church was then 
using these gifts. And so Paul is basically trying to convince them, to show them uh, that although the spiritual gift of tongues is a wonderful gift of God, it's still got its purpose and it's got its place. And it's only to be used in the church gathering when there is one who interprets. Verse 13 says, Therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he might interpret. Because if there's no other interpreter and he speaks in tongues, then it's his or her responsibility to interpret what he or she just said. In verse 14, he continues to say, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I may not understand what I'm saying, but my spirit does. My spirit prays, and it's a prayer in this tongue, a gift that is given by God that is being spoken of here as a wonderful blessing to those who speak this gift to God. I pray in a tongue, he says. Verse 15 continues and says, What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I'll do both. I'll pray with words that I understand. Lord, I am asking you to meet these needs. Let these desires of my heart be fulfilled. But there may come a time when I'll reach a place where I'm just out of words and I just let the Spirit of God take over. And I'll pray in the Spirit. And it's a wonderful blessing to be able to do so and know that the Spirit of God is interceding on our behalf through such things, such a mechanism as this. That's the conclusion that Paul is making in verse 15. Again, he says, I'll pray with the Spirit and I'll also pray with understanding. I will sing in the Spirit and I will also sing with understanding. An amazing thing, Paul says that he speaks in tongues quite often. But it's not in the public setting that he does that. It's in his private prayer time. I will pray in the Spirit. I'll pray with my understanding. I'll sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. Verse 16 concludes, Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks? Again, he had already said in verse 4, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And he said in verse 2, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And here, in this verse that we just read, verse 16, he's saying, How can anybody who is there with you say amen at your giving of thanks? So it's not a speaking and utterance to the church from God. It's not a message from God to the church. It is a man or woman speaking to God through the Spirit of God in this language that he or she has been given by the Lord. Verse 17 says, If you indeed give thanks well, that is good. But others are not edified. I thank my God, Paul says in verse 18, I speak with tongues more than you all. It's interesting he says that. He says in a couple of other places in chapter 12, he said, do all speak in tongues? And the expected answer is no. He said in chapter 14 here uh, that not everyone speaks in tongues. And yet here in verse 
18, he says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. I, I suppose you'd have to clarify that because there may be some who would say, see, right there it says everybody should be speaking in tongues. That's not what he's saying. He's generalizing. They all did not speak in tongues. But those who did speak in tongues, Paul says, of those, he beat them in how he uses the gift of tongues in his own private prayer life. Not in the church, but in his own personal praying to the Lord. Now, it doesn't really say anywhere that Paul never did speak in tongues. But he does give an indication that his preference is that prophecy should be utilized as a gift from God rather than the gift of tongues in the assembly because, again, it edifies the whole body. So he says in verse 19 that very thing. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So Paul is making it very clear to the Corinthian church and I hope to us that tongues is a wonderful gift. However, it's not to be utilized in the setting of an assembly of believers unless there is an interpretation. We'll get one final thought on that in uh, just a short while. But he goes on to talk about the sign of tongues with regard to unbelievers. And he's going to quote Isaiah 28 here as he continues on in this explanation. But there's a bit of difficulty, as we will see, with the wording in the next several verses. So I'm going to read through them and uh, I'll show you what I mean as we move forward. He says in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And then he gives this. In the law it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now that's great so far, but before we read verse 23, it probably would help to give what I believe Paul is referencing here. In Isaiah, he wrote that particular verse that Paul quotes here several years before the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah lived around 700 to 750 B.C. and the Babylonian captivity took place about 120 years after the writing of that prophecy. And it is about the Babylonians that he is writing. Because in the context of chapter 28, we see that Paul is, rather that Isaiah is looking at the situation in Jerusalem. They were completely turned away from God at that time. And they were going to be judged by God. And he tells the people in Jerusalem, in Judea, at that day, that there's coming a day when there will be a people who will invade Jerusalem and they will be speaking another language. And so all of those in Isaiah's day who were not believing Isaiah's prophecies 
would be understanding that this prophecy would indeed be fulfilled when the Babylonians came and invaded Jerusalem and they were indeed speaking in other languages and it was a time of confusion and that had never taken place in Jerusalem before. The Assyrians had never successfully entered into Jerusalem. They tried, but they did not. Babylon did. And that was the fulfillment of Isaiah 28. They spoke in their own language and the people in Jerusalem did not understand that language. And as a result, God's judgment came upon them as a sign that the judgment of God had indeed fallen upon the unbelievers. Now, if you'll fast forward to the New Testament and take a look at on the day of Pentecost when the people of, of God were gathered together and it was a time of great celebration and the 120 in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in other languages and the book of Acts records in chapter 2 of the book a wonderful experience of the many people who were there speaking in unknown languages because everyone knew they were Galileans but everyone around them who were from various places all around the then known Roman world were hearing these people praising God in their own languages. But there were some who said, these are drunk. And they did not accept this wonderful experience of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So just like in Isaiah 28, they rejected the things that God was doing. And that was exactly what I think Paul is referring to in having quoted Isaiah, he wanted them to, and us to realize that the gift of tongues are indeed for a sign to the unbelievers in that respect, because they'll hear it, but they'll reject the beauty of it. They'll reject the purposes of God in those things that are being done. So verse 23, which makes it a very, very confusing statement as you add that verse to what he has already said, Verse 23 says, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So, if that's the case, then why did he say in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but understanding and be mature, because in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Yet in verse 23, if it's a sign to unbelievers, and they come into the church and people are speaking in tongues, then he says, how are they going to understand? They'll be confused and they'll think you're mad. That's why we have to go back to what we spoke of with regard to the original prophecy in Isaiah and the fulfillment in that day of Pentecost where the unbelievers did not accept the gift. They did not understand that which was happening. That's why Paul says it, I believe, this way in verses 22 and 23. So though they seem like perhaps a contradiction, and quite frankly... There are a lot of expositors who stumbled over this 
And I'm not saying that I've got the right answer, but I'm telling you that that's the most palatable explanation that I can come up with. The only other explanation is, as some have done, is to say that some copyist misquoted the original writing of Paul and it stuck in all the remainder of the manuscripts so that verses 22 and 23 should have been in agreement with one another, but they got somehow scrambled and that is a mistake. And there are many theologians who take that particular stand on this pair of verses. I would rather say that it's not a mistake, but I can also say that I'm not alone in thinking that Paul, in some of his writings, writes some things that are very hard to understand, and this is one of them. Even the Apostle Peter said that in one of his letters, quoting in First Peter, I believe it is, where Peter says, the writings of Paul are hard to understand, and I agree with him. They are sometimes hard to understand, and this is one example of that. So let us continue. He says in verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, and he is convicted by all. So prophecy again for the unbeliever coming into the assembly is not only great for the assembly, the body of Christ, to be edified, it's also helpful for the unbeliever when he hears a prophecy being spoken and he sees that the power of God is being manifest in the church. So he says, this is a good thing. And prophecy is utilized in its proper context. If an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced and convicted by all. Verse 25 concludes, And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God truly is among you. That is a wonderful thing to pray about, to hope for, to have experientially in the body of Christ when we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and somebody comes in and hears that good news and he responds or she responds in such a way as this, then we have seen God work in our midst. This is a wonderful thing that should be happening and we should be praying that it would happen and if it isn't happening, then we should pray harder still for that to be the case. So in verse 26, he continues to talk about the church meetings and the assemblies of the body of Christ. He says in verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So again, Paul is saying in the Corinthian church, they were making a mess of things with everybody kind of randomly doing their own thing, and it was causing chaos and confusion instead of order. Let everything be done for edification. That needs to be the key factor in how things are done in the body with regard to the use of the gifts. Verse 27 continues, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. Make sure that interpretation does take place. If tongues are given, nothing should happen again until an interpretation comes. And if an interpretation doesn't come, then the individual who spoke that gift of tongues should be giving the interpretation. Otherwise, he or she should be silent in the church. 
That's what he says in verse 28. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Again, another indication that Paul is saying the gift of tongues is for personal edification in our prayer life, in our speaking to God, not speaking to the church, unless there is an interpretation that would be so. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For if, verse 31, for you all can prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. It's important that we have an order, and he's going to say that at the very last of this chapter. So, if more than one pe person is speaking, it can make a very, very difficult situation for those who are trying to hear what's being said and trying to be edified in the assembling together. Verse 33, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So that's important also. You can't go around saying, well, the Spirit came upon me and I just couldn't help it. Yes, you can, because it's you who controls that which comes out of your mouth. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. It's not subject to the Spirit of God forcing you to say something. It is never to be done with that kind of mindset. Because, in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul is saying this to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, this is what I teach everywhere. It's just that we have this one series of explanations of the Apostle Paul with regard to the spiritual gifts in this one book. And I'm so grateful that this one book does contain this information. But it's important that we utilize those gifts that the Spirit of God severally gives as He chooses in a way that edifies the church and doesn't cause confusion. Very, very important for us to remember. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Verse 34. I wish that wasn't here. But let me explain, if I can, in the best way that I think I'm able to explain, that this is something that Paul experienced in the assembling of the church. The people would come together, whether it was in a synagogue in the Jewish church, or whether it was in a Gentile church, apparently in the first century, at least, during the time of Paul, the assembly was arranged in a pattern, if you will, where they had chairs set up for individuals. There was a chair for the one who was to be leading the ministry of the day. Uh, the, perhaps a rabbi in a synagogue would sit in the master's seat to teach. And there were indications in the early church writings that that is how they set up their early churches as well. They had chairs around the perimeter of the room. On one side of the room, it was for the women to be seated. On the opposite side of the room, it was for the men of the congregation to be seated. And in the middle, the teachers, the elders, would be gathered together. 
and so they could teach from the center of the room so that everybody in the room could hear. They typically would be seated instead of standing, as we sometimes or often do in our present-day church ministries. But Paul is saying, let your women keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak. Now, that's a pretty harsh statement, but keep in mind that in chapter 11, Paul had spoken about the fact that women do indeed have the ability to speak in the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge. They were able to speak utilizing the gifts of the Spirit as the Spirit gave to them. So why is he saying this here? Well, if the women are on one side of the room and the men are on the other side and one of the teachers gives a prophetic statement or a word of knowledge or a teaching, the women are not to be asking their husbands across the hall, what did he mean by that? What did he say? Can you explain that to me? That's why he says they're not allowed to speak but they are to be submissive, as the law also says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church in that sort of context. So we just read verses 34 and 35 has explained that this is the reason, because it would be very difficult for the teacher to continue teaching if the woman interrupts the teaching by asking questions. Keep the questions to yourselves and let your husbands explain at home. And that's part of the um, leadership role of the husband to be able to take what has been spoken in the assembly and to be able to expound on that at home with his wife and his, with his children as well. Verse 36 asks the question, Did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? Paul is asking this in a sarcastic sort of way because the Corinthian church thought themselves to be quite knowledgeable about everything. Paul's here saying, listen, did it come from you or was it given to you? He's reminding them the source of their knowledge. They needed to hear this. So he says in verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is saying, I have the apostolic authority to write these things, and you should understand that this authority is being given by God to me, the Paul the Apostle, so that you can learn from me those things that are needful for the edification of the body of Christ. Verse 38 says, If anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. I have heard, I have read, expositors say or record this verse of Scripture in this way. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and forbid to speak in tongues. That's a twisting of the Scriptures. Paul says just the opposite. Do not forbid. So we will not forbid the speaking of tongues in the assembly. But we want things to be done in a way that edifies the church. 
Lastly, in verse 40, Paul says, let all things be done decently and in order. That's the final word that Paul has on this subject, and it's a good final word to remind ourselves of as we look to whether or not we should be experiencing these wonderful gifts of God in this present age. My answer to that is, yes, I believe we should. Do we? Well, I believe we have, to some extent, received and seen some of these gifts in operation. Not all of them. And in the church, there are abuses. And that may be why much of the church has rejected these spiritual gifts for the most part. It's a sad commentary because every gift of God is perfect. Every gift. And I don't want to exclude any gift from being used by the Spirit of God in the work of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. But I do want to make sure that we do it properly, making sure that it edifies the body and not the individual, making sure that nothing is confusing that results from whatever gift is being utilized, making sure that all of the gifts are done with regard to the purpose that the gift should be intended by the Spirit of God to be used. That's important. And lastly, again, let all things be done decently and in order. I've often wondered, and I've come from an Assembly of God church where speaking in tongues was quite common. And whenever the speaking in tongues took place, there was always an interpretation, at least that's what it was assumed to be. And I don't want to put the Assemblies of God or any other Pentecostal church down, but I think that there's, there's a bit of a misunderstanding in those Pentecostal churches with regard to the gifts of spiritual tongues and the gift of interpretation. If done properly, a gift of tongues can be used in the church and the interpretation will be an explanation of what was spoken by the individual to God. I'm convinced of that now, and I believe that that is so. So if anybody comes with a message in tongues, um, and there is an interpretation, I won't discount it, but we need to examine it to make sure it is in line with God's Word, and whatever the purpose of that particular gift of tongues and interpretation might have been as it pertains to the local body. I want things to be done in good order. And I want things to be done as the Spirit leads. And that's why I believe it is important for us to study these several chapters that we've looked at in 1 Corinthians up to this point and really get a better handle on if we are able to by the Spirit of God dwelling in us who teaches us and guides us and instructs us to see if perhaps the Lord may, might use us with regard to any one of those wonderful gifts. Earnestly seek the best gift, Paul has said. Seek to prophesy. Seek the best gift, whatever that might happen to be for whatever the situation may be in the body of Christ. And I believe that God honors that. And if there is no evidence of the gifts of the Spirit being manifest in the church, 
is only because we are not ready or willing even in some cases. My prayer though is that every one of us might be willing to at least ask the Lord, Lord, I know spiritual gifts are things that you have provided in your church for a purpose and I want to be used by you in your church. So will you, Lord God, fill me with your Holy Spirit and will you be willing to let me be able to manifest a gift from the Spirit in the body of Christ so that the body might be edified. If we can pray that kind of prayer, I think it's safe to assume that God will answer. So let's continue to trust Him and to love Him and serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are the last days. And if we are faithful to doing those things, then I think He will be faithful in using us in that way. Next week, chapter 15, a most beautiful explanation of the resurrection. And not only the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of all believers as well. And so that's a wonderful chapter to embark upon. And I hope you'll be able to join me with uh, that in mind next time. So grace and peace until then. God bless.